I V M. In just 21 days in January, there were 134 ceasefire violations across the line of control. In 2017, almost every month since August has had over a hundred violations. How serious are these ceasefire violations? Why is this happening? Can India end this cycle of violence? Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on economics, public policy, and international relations. We're your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Shrinath. Joining us in studio today is Lieutenant General Prakash Menon. who has spent over 40 years in the indian army and then 5 years in the government thereafter he has had extended operational experience in on the siachen glacier the line of control and counterinsurgency operations in kashmir currently general menon is the director of the strategic studies program at the takshashila institution also joining us today is pranay kotestani pranay is a colleague from the takshashila institution general menon why is the line of control heating up again let's first try and understand that when you say that there are 100 violations every month uh one of the issues which we have to worry about the statistics about the line of control violation is that each everything is counted as a violation which means even if a single gunshot has been fired you would actually equate that with when 10 run, 10 rounds of artillery is also fired so the scale of the equation actually is quite imbalanced so your description that it is the most dangerous spot in the world i think uh, is not quite true because if this has been going on for such a long time then there must be some level of danger by which it doesn't cross there is a line on top which doesn't happen and you can you're still continuing to exchange fire so danger to whom are you talking about it is danger is a danger that we'll have a larger conflict or is it a danger to the people on the lc so we have to be very careful of understanding what is happening there and why it is happening that's what you actually asked Uh, general menon uh, our knowledge about loc only comes from the movie loc kargil so fr- we want to know from you actually what does the loc look like and even before that what is this loc yeah it's the like all the line of control and uh, previously with pakistan after the initial war in 48 49 we had what is called the ceasefire line and after the 71 war we had and it's demarcated on a map which has been exchanged so the line which has been drawn today which we call the line of control is an accepted line on the ground which is marked on the map and known to both sides but the problem is that this is an unnatural division of terrain it's and therefore that's where the complications are so the line starts from the northernmost point at what we call nj9842 which is slightly north of kargil and there the agreement said that it will be northward towards the glacier and that line northwards over the glacier has been has different interpretations uh so that's where the glacier siachen glacier uh problem has has happened 
and then it proceeds south, goes through high altitude terrain in JNK in Kashmir, then comes down towards the plain of uh, Jammu, and this line actually is the one where which is disputed, and therefore the rest of the portion is called the international boundary where you have boundary pillars and accepted international boundary so this line essentially is a line which has been accepted by both sides but it is under dispute and that is the status of that and what does it look like well it's most part uh, especially in ladakh is in the kargil area very high altitude barren mountains then as you come southwards it's not only mountainous but it's also got forest terrain and a combination of the mountains with forests makes infiltration that much more easier it's also as you come down south it again has forests in, in on on both the sides so when you have an unnatural line which divides two nations you have terrain configurations which are varied and now that both the armies have been practically eyeball to eyeball for several decades it is also highly militarized gentlemen and you mentioned that the border is unnatural what would a more natural border be like do we have examples of that in yeah. the international border with yeah. pakistan or elsewhere uh normally actually countries find these various either they are mountains or you find basically water obstacles if they are which can actually easily demarcate uh the two countries in essence this is the radcliff line he drew a line on the map uh, which he had no idea what it was divided the country and therefore even villages actually at that time the line went through these some of these villages so you had half the village on one side half towns on the other side so what would be natural would be you have natural configurations which can be identified basically in terms of the terrain features the best would of course between would be water where the let's say you have the kishan ganga and you have uh, which is a river there or you have the indus where you can actually easily demarcate so one bank is held by the other and the other bank is held by another country that sort of thing does not exist because it is a line drawn on the map by people who do not know the ground and that's how that the legacy of this problem it lies in the unnatural division of the indo-pak border itself called the radcliffe line general menon you mentioned briefly that in some places the troops are eye to eye with each other so you commanded troops in siachen right so e- even in that place were the troops visible to the other side yeah actually siachen is slightly different because there the distance between you and the enemy is quite a lot i mean on, between the pakis and you are quite a lot because uh, that is how the terrain configuration is although there are places where they are pretty close but that's more an exception than the rule uh whereas on the lc uh, uh on the line of control there are many places where you are practically eyeball to eyeball i'm not quite sure because i'm actually dated on that account whether with the 
heating up of the LC, so on, and the constant exchange of fire, how they are managing the eyeball to eyeball because it's easy for you to actually knock the other guy off as it is easy for him to knock you off. So there would be some tactical arrangements which would have been made by both sides to avoid that thing. But, but the eyeball to eyeball still remains because it's close and you can see and therefore you dig trenches, you protect yourself, all movement is undercover, you know, the normal tactics which takes place. So the uh, the soldier will always find a way to preserve himself and fight. As you said, gentlemen, in man-made borders are rather unnatural. So we construct fences, right? Is all of this border fenced? Where is it fenced? How do we cope with uh, the differences in terrain? There was no fence before, but ever since I think... Uh, the 90s, late 90s, we started, or early 2000, we started the fence. And uh, it was an idea which General Widge, when he was the chief of army staff, he is the one who mooted the idea. The idea was to fence it, and that's what we have done. So we have fenced practically the entire line of control. But the fen is not on the line of control, at least in most places. It is must be slightly behind because in some places when the fencing was on, firing was taking place so you couldn't carry out the fencing activities. So the fences are actually brought back. Uh, so there would be a distance between the fence and actual line of control itself I mean, in most places. And the fence, therefore, is an obstacle system. But any obstacle system is as good as your ability to uh, mount surveillance with, uh, so that you can look at the obstacle system throughout and react to anybody who's trying to breach it. So if you have, the LC is about 760 uh, odd kilometers. So if you have such a large this thing and if you have to mount constant surveillance on it, you could calculate and, and the terrain is difficult and there are, it's forested. So you are your observation and your visibility is also limited, then you could uh, just imagine the difficulty of keeping it, every portion under constant surveillance. So it's a challenge which the, the troops have to face. The fence just certainly has helped in actually uh, being able to restrict re infiltration in the sense that we are able to either catch them before they eat the fence or we know that the fence has been breached so we can take action soon after that. So it depends. It's a sort of, it, it has helped in in dealing with the infiltration, but it has not stopped infiltration because it is physically impossible. It's a, it's a permanent system. The person who wants to cross the fence can do it at the point of his choosing, which means you keep watching it, you know your pattern of activity which you try to give out not a pattern. But since you can't watch every place and every point, you'll always find a way to get around it, sometimes underneath it, sometimes over it, sometimes through it. So the fence has helped, but it will not stop infiltration. General Men, you use this word called ceasefire, right? So what is this ceasefire? When does it get violated? How does that work? It's actually the 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 firing on the line of control has uh, escalated ever since 
the early nineties, uh, late eighties, eighteen nineties, when when that's what that was a time which was the dawn of Pakistan abetting insurgency in JNK. So you had large groups of people who went across and came back, and that was the time when actually the firing exchange had started. It continued for a long time till we came to what is called the ceasefire agreement, which is still in force in 2003. And as per the ceasefire agreement, it's an agreement between both armies signed by the the respective uh, uh, DGMOs, which says that you are not supposed to fire across. I mean, you're not, you're not supposed to open fire. And uh, they've, uh, we have a system by which the DGMOs can talk, so they do every week. And they can also pick up a phone and talk to the other DGMO if they want to. So the ceasefire has been in place in 2003. Till And of course, violation of ceasefire would mean that somebody has fired. And it is always the case that each side will blame the other for being the first to open fire. And therefore, it is difficult to establish actually who started it and both sides would blame each other. Uh, but there was an agreement that you should not open fire. So that sort of continued. It held. Soon after that, it carried on about 2008 onwards when it started in bits and pieces. It started getting, uh, let's say, uh, the LC was getting hot. Fire exchange was taking place. But even when it was, there was a certain limitation to it that it would wax and wane. It would actually, you know, escalate for some time and come down. So, uh, remember by which time to the 2003, we were both nuclear powers. So, the, that also probably would have cast a shadow on the type of escalation that you could expect. And what we see now is the the escalation levels have now reached uh, uh, the highest ever because, and and the point at which departure for this apparently is sometime between after 14, 2014 onwards with last year being the highest. And if January itself has got 124 violations, that's, you know, January is a time when actually it's most of the places, especially in the northern parts, the snows are still there. It's very cold. And despite that, if there are so many violations, and I would presume that most, some, most of these violations are in Jammu where it is not so cold. But that's a very large number of violations. But I think we should still, uh, we should have uh, a look, if you really want to analyze it, what are these violations about? What sort of weapons have been used? Was it firing by normal weapons or just automatics? Or was it artillery being exchanged, which is the heavy? Or was it mortar? So that would give you a degree of exchange. But the fact is, there is no doubt about it, that for the last couple of years, uh, both sides have resorted to firing and uh, firing by heavy weapons, which I, I would mean that they're using mortars and artillery. And nothing more than that, because that's where they, it seems to be that both have drawn a line, uh, which is not, it's not an agreement, but it's actually uh, part of the lingua franca of the exchange of fire itself, that they won't use more than that. But there's no guarantee as to where that can take us. So 
what we see now is certainly an escalation of the lc and or constant consequent to that uh, there is obviously more casualties on both sides both military and civilian and that's something which is a complete violation of the ceasefire agreement so it's practically as of the ceasefire agreement does not in exist in practice although it exists on paper so the heating up of the border more ceasefire violations do you think they have something to do with the surgical strikes so to speak uh, of uh, what the current government sort of endorsed no i think surgical strikes is just one particular action undertaken last year in september but that is part of the larger pattern of activity which has been taken place uh well let's put the activity in what is it that is taking place there is an exchange of fire and that exchange of fire means that you could be firing a sniper could kill somebody on either side either they could kill one of us which means you just have one person position in such a place and he takes on somebody who comes in his side so you, from that level onwards you could use uh, your uh, light machine guns your medium machine guns and then go up the scale and have mortars and artillery and so on or you could actually have direct firing weapons which are quite deadly because they can actually destroy bunkers and so on so you have this level of firing that is one issue the other one is actually the cross border military activity which means that uh how much is the case that they have come across and actually mm, attacked our our posts or killed our men and as you know some of them were beheaded and so on so th- there has been this uh intensity of activity and diversity of activity which means that each side is exchanging blows to a considerable extent and doing it in military tactical by tactical actions to damage or uh, cause as much of damage and destruction to the other so that's been the pattern which is related but it's been capped at the level of artillery and also those actions are normally contained to a particular area it wouldn't be that the entire lc is alive and there is fighting no that would not be the case so in essence we see an exchange of energy uh, taking place uh, why is it taking place if you would like to ask is difficult to answer except if i take a cue from the our own chief statement that uh, that the pressure on the pakistanis would be kept up and the lc firing would likely to continue till the time that they don't they stop infiltration and their support for proxy war in especially in jnk so if that is the reason why it is being done then uh probably the, you could question the issue as to how is the firing going to help stop these two because it has, never has in fact the ceasefire agreement came about despite the fact that the infiltration uh, has held despite the fact that the infiltration has continued so if we now take up a position that we are going to 
do this and put pressure on them. There is a problem here. The problem is like this, that the use of force must be connected to political purpose. Uh, in this case, the political purpose is to get Pakistan, apparently, if you want them not to do, uh, to support the elements in Kashmir, it means that they want Pakistan to stop supporting the elements, either sending people from across or giving help of any other sort. Well, uh, uh, the problem is like this, that you can affect his will, but this is not a will which can be easily subdued because he has also got a free will. When you exchange sit and exchange fire across the LC, the, the issue is that he can fire on you as much as you can fire on him. Because if you want him to stop firing, then you have to cross the LC, physically go and destroy him and capture him and hold that ground. But that is not what we can do. So, And that's definitely what not what we can do under the nuclear umbrella. Yeah, in the sense that we, would, we wouldn't want to escalate it by actually going and capture territory and start a war. So the exchange of fire does actually strengthens will on both sides. And we must understand that as far as our relations with Pakistan is concerned and their relations with us, in a societal sense, there's a visceral sense of hatred which, is, which prevails on both sides. They do anything to us and we do anything to them has got a lot of support from both societies. It's got a lot of uh, societal support to cause damage, treat Pakistan as the enemy, Pakistani street, India as the enemy. And therefore, the will is actually, when you do it at this level and cap it like this, of the populace. And I would say of the, of the men who are actually facing the fire, is strengthened, not weakened. And, so this, and this begs the question that what are you therefore achieving it? Because force is supposed to affect his will. Instead, it strengthens it. And of course, Pakistanis use it to tell the whole world that this is the most dangerous place on earth because they would like the Indo-Pak uh, situation to have international attention and so that they are watchful of it. And of course, the Pakistani army uses it to magnify what do they call the Indian threat by, by actually also amplifying the casualties which are caused, and then they will accuse us of actually killing civilians. So the Indian threats get magnified, and the Pakistani army, therefore, actually gets advantage of it. So uh, it to say that this is the most dangerous part on earth and so on is actually the Pakistani line. It is not, because if it was danger, then it would have blown up to much further levels long ago. We have actually, ex it's interesting to see that we can exchange fire for so long periods, yet cap it within, without an understanding, but probably uh, with a tacit understanding between both the sides. That's how it works. General Menon, you briefly mentioned if the political aim of India is to stop infiltration, then how does a more active uh, line of control help in that in the sense that if the line of control is more active, is it easier for infiltration to happen? I would assume so. 
See, the political aim is actually the infiltration, stopping infiltration is a military aim. The political aim is stopping support from across the border for terrorism. That's a political aim. And uh, we must understand that here we are dealing with an entity who has not stopped supporting uh, the Afghan Taliban despite all the pressure being brought on them by the most powerful nation in the world, the United States. Because it's deniable. Uh, you just deny that anybody is infiltrating and you don't know anything about it. But we know, and anybody who knows the LC knows, that there is no way that infiltration can take place without the the active connivance of the Pakistani military post, which are there. It's just not possible. So, firstly, it is deniable. So, that Pakistan is good at that. The issue whether firing will help to stop infiltration. I would certainly say it does not help. And let me just explain why. If you're firing to hurt him, which means you try and destroy the posts which are which you think are abetting infiltration, well, you've done that for quite some time. We did this before the previous uh, ceasefire. And we found that the infiltration doesn't stop because actually when you destroy a post, uh, they will actually relocate the post, have it somewhere else. So, and, and I think I think theoretically we need to understand that the destruction of a post strengthens his will. It does not weaken it because he can actually bear the cost. Although some of our my friends think that actually he will run out of ammunition. That's rubbish. Uh, he'll get as, as much as ammunition that he wants. So, and infiltration and firing also puts a lot of pressure on our military about stopping infiltration because when you have firing, you have to actually be more alert and you can't be exposed. Your movement is restricted because this counter infiltration measures requires movement to take place of men. So all this puts us actually at a disadvantage because there is more pressure on the men. We have already spread out to stop infiltration because you have got to do both. On the LC, you have to guard your post, which means, you know, you choose the place where you're going to fight. But you also have to guard against movement, which means that you, you spread yourselves out thinner on the ground. And that makes you, you more vulnerable. He doesn't have to do it because there is no infiltration taking place from this side. And so I, I don't buy the argument that the LC firing will stop infiltration by putting pressure on him and he's going to come and ask you, please stop firing, I will stop infiltration. That's not going to happen. That I think military leaders over there know it quite well and probably they need to actually disabuse the political leadership if they think that this is going to reduce infiltration. And I don't think the figures of infiltration itself supports the notion that for the last three years, the infiltration has gone down because of the firing. I don't think so. Further, if there is a lot of um, activity across the line of control, a lot of firing, won't the fence itself be affected? Well, uh, the fence, yeah, could be affected if artillery is fired or mortars are fired and so on. But those could be easily repaired. Actually, the fence is affected more, especially in the northern areas, because of snowfall. 
and that's where each year you know a lot of effort has been put to put the fence fence back although now i think the engineers have probably made it more sturdier it doesn't get affected so much uh, by by the snow the f- the fence does you know the 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 you must understand that the artillery which is used which can possibly affect the fence would probably be used on targets which are hardened where or on soft targets which can easily you can hit a, a, a village with artillery and one of the things which has been happening and this is what is the part is that both sides uh, seems to be um, hitting villages although i'm sure that we wouldn't be aiming for villages but when the artillery uh, is fired it's possible that villages in the vicinity also can get affected civilians who are in the open can get affected and uh, it is also the case as far as we are concerned from what we know about ourselves that the pakistani artillery deliberately targets our villages and therefore there has now been uh, many villages have to be evacuated we've got camps where these uh, people have now been housed and if you look at the media reports from the other side the pakistani seems to be complaining of the same thing so uh, it is uh, as a situation is that you can try to hurt him and he can also has a free will to hurt you so it is uh, an exchange which can go on for a long time but the question we need to ask is who is benefiting how is this resolving the issue at hand and i don't think that that it is resolving the issue at hand but uh, from our point of view maybe the fact that we could use it and display it as that we are taking a tough stand against pakistan is something which is the narrative which f- sort of dovetails into the ruling party's basic stance on dealing with pakistan that we are acting tough on them the question is how does that benefit us and that question doesn't seem to be answered by the fact that we can continue this exchange and yet benefit yes you can benefit if you want to actually raise the temperature of jingoism internally by take saying that these are the actions we have killed so many of them we've done this we've destroyed that it's all fine that's that that definitely will help domestically but does it help to curb the problem which you're seeking to curb which is infiltration and cross border terrorism support i don't think so and surgical strike is just one of the uh, i think it was a bold action taken uh which is part of uh you can say uh an answer to what they did to us in uri i mean that was just a uh, uh, one major action which is taken which we have publicized of course but that's not but that's only it's going to happen once in a while the official this thing is that now it's part of our doctrine so we can do it again so we'll let us see as to next time what we'll do the point is one message is across that we are trying to make is that any violation will not be left alone and will be answered in kind so what 
in effect is there is now a cycle of revenge which is prevailing on the lc so it is what you could call at least tactically reciprocal butchery which will prevail not butchery of a kind which is uh, which the state cannot bear because it is in it'll add up to quite a lot but in terms of incident it would be uh, an individual incident would actually have much less casualties than the overall figures which we might might think of but in in a political sense it looks quite meaningless uh if i were to play the devil's advocate uh, wouldn't this sort of this type of action over the loc increase deterrence and hence raise raise the costs for pakistan to engage in terrorist activities yeah that's the fallacy um uh, firstly it is not deterrence because deterrence has already failed we are, they are already they have for many years been supporting terrorism they many years been infiltration so better the thing is we will have to compel them it will be compellence more than deterrence and that's the question i'm asking that if if you cannot use the entire might of your military then you're not able to affect his will and we can't use that might because of other issues especially nuclear issues we are using it in dosages which he can bear continue to bear and inflict similar dosages on us so when you look at the balance sheet of the exchange how do we expect that he will first beg for mercy and knowing the type of uh relations we have and the historical legacy which underlines it that's not going to happen and and we knew it that's why we went in for the ceasefire in 2003 and it is well thought of and i see no reason why it should not be imposed again unless we stick to the fact that we'll continue to make sure that we answer their infiltration and the cross border terrorism through lc firing that's not the instrument which is going to be of any political value in terms of dealing with pakistan it might have political value domestically sanadman um, if i could change tracks a little bit could you tell us a little about how uh, the movement of people that is civilians happens across the line of control uh, there are like you said uh, certain villages and uh, others which were sort of split when the ceasefire agreement was drawn and uh, what's that like today do people come over from the pakistan side to india uh well actually people don't come over that used to happen in the old days in fact in the old days sometimes uh marriage barats used to go from one side of the lc to the other <laughs> uh, you know uh, that also used to take place no longer so who are the people actually who come across so civilians uh there are certain instances where let's say somebody from kashmir has gone across got married they have children worked there now he wants to come back so what he does is is probably takes the entire family he's got kids he will probably pay off the pakistani uh, border post and then he crosses that and month in the morning you find that there is this family of four or five or six or more than that sitting on your side of the lc that means they're in, they're in your territory 
and they refuse to go away oh and they can do this because our fence is not at the lc but a little behind yes i mean you, yeah, obviously that 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 makes it easier for them because fence is behind so now we have no choice but actually to they they, they are now illegal people in our in our country so you got to take them in and then the normal process of civilian processing takes place so that's the type of movement which takes place all other movement are movements of infiltrators who are part of the terrorism infrastructure I mean they are coming there with either they come with the other fighters or they bring with them porters and so on who carry the heavy stuff so that's the movement which is now mostly in place of course uh, towards the IBN in Jammu there would be some amount of smuggling which is also there prevalent but um, if there is firing and so on normally the smugglers find better ways to cross <laughs> general men we used to hear about this thing called unmogip right united nations military observer group in india and pakistan uh, when i was in srinagar i did see they have an office there as well what what is this about what do these people do well it dates back to the un resolution of 1948 where the observer group was established after all we went and we went to the un ourselves and uh, therefore they are supposed to observe be observers on both sides they operate in srinagar and in islamabad they have these observers which are there to be the neutral ones to see but uh, since the un agreement was never implemented in its totality india has been very um, you can say not very supportive of the observers itself so the observers mostly are restricted to the lc from the pakistani side and uh, they don't make much movement or we don't sort of support most of their movements on the lc on our side and uh, therefore it, they continue to be there at, before the 71 war probably they were more active but uh, they are now much less than they were before so as far as we are concerned since we have part of the deal we still respect them their presence there but we don't allow them free movement on the lcs mr pakistanis does because the pakistanis would like to portray to the world that the, in, the indians are the ones who are doing it so you can actually craft a lot of incidents bring them there and show this is what has been done so you know pakistan is pretty good at that you briefly mentioned about this cycle of revenge so as i can understand there are two cycles operating one is there is a political cycle of revenge and then there's this military cycle of revenge are both these cycles in sync with each other what happens when they go out of sync now uh, the political cycle is not another cycle it is actually part of the same cycle uh, let's say it happens like this that somebody starts of the firing so you have newspaper reports saying that you've lost so many things so many people or you have somebody who has come across and killed some of our soldiers or civilians or whatever and therefore there is this clamor for exacting revenge and that revenge is exacted as the military says at the time and place of their own choosing as a terminology which is employed so in essence this becomes a purely revenge cycle you do something to me i'll do something to you 
and what I do to you also can be revenge. By, I mean, you can take revenge for that. So we can continue endlessly without actually achieving anything, because that's where we have to look at. Any military exchange actually has its own Clausewitzian term. It's grammar. It's got a grammar of its own. You there, there is. It doesn't have a logic of its own, but it's got a it's got a grammar. Grammar means that you there are certain set of rules which were not there. They are understood. Uh, they are not written down, but they know that this is what is, there is a limitation here. So that rule has now been fairly established over a period of time that we won't go beyond a particular point. So within that cycle, we are now in a place where the purpose of military power is between purpose and military power. There has to be a connectivity. What is military power? Supposed to achieve, what is it that you want in political terms? And if you say in political terms you are describing it that you want him to stop infiltration, you want him to stop support to terrorism, then I think the instrumentality of getting that there is inadequate because this exchange of firepower is not going to achieve that. That's for sure. So that is why it eventually it has decayed into a purely cycle of revenge, which means that it is a useless exchange of energy without achieving pol results politically, except of course being used for domestic purposes for both sides, building to attract the international community, and so on. So, in 2018, if India wants to end this cycle of revenge, what can we do? What can the Indian political establishment do? I think it is not a question. It both will much more want to do it. So, as reports are indicating from the other side, that the Pakistanis would actually want the ceasefire in place. That they are, in though the army chief actually told the parliament that he would support actually peace with India. So the issue is that this military cycle of revenge, which is continuing endlessly without purpose, can only be brought to a halt by political leadership on both sides. They have to take a decision that we must stop. We must first, as a first step. I mean, this is not the end of. We must first put the ceasefire back into place. After all, it is a, a BJP government which had put the ceasefire in place. So it is uh, uh, they could easily do that if they want to, uh, if the Pakistanis were willing. My guess is uh, that the Pakistanis would support a ceasefire, and that it could be done if we want to. And modalities can always be. Uh, worked out as to how this is going to be, so that both sides uh, don't have, don't have to tell their domestic pop population that we asked for a ceasefire. So that that can be managed diplomatically. So an agreement is is there. We just have to implement it, and that calls for political wisdom and nothing more than that. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Pragati Podcast and staying with us till the end. Send us your questions, comments, and brickbats by writing into podcast at thinkpragati.com. 
We're also on Twitter as at Hamsni H and at Zeus is Dead. You can find the Pragati podcast on the thinkpragati.com website and on your preferred podcast app. We're there everywhere. As you can see, we have a podcast listener in his natural habitat. Billions of years of evolution have led him to this point. He's on his way to work and listening to podcasts makes his miserable day better. He will now head to work and use all his knowledge to communicate with other colleagues and possibly future mates. You can find more of his species on ivmpodcasts.com. Your one-stop destination where you can check out all the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.